Want award-winning box sets? Try Now TV. See every epic episode of Game of Thrones, both sides of the law in The Wire, and why Succession got everyone talking. So, treat yourself to award-winning shows on a Now TV Entertainment Pass. To start your 14-day free trial today, search Now TV. 18 plus new customers only. Order renews at 15 euro unless cancelled. Offer ends 7th of July. Terms apply. Hi, I am Gary, and I am here for Midwest Mics on UClick TV. We are in the High V Arena Mobile Studios this week. Uh, we are down at the Negro League Baseball Museum in the new exhibit uh, on black baseball in living color featuring the art of Greg Kindler and other artwork and, and, and artifacts from the time of the league. We are joined by the president of the museum, uh, Mr. Bob Kendrick. How are you today? And I'm doing great. How are you? Oh, man, I'm, I'm fantastic. Yeah. You know, it was, it's a great day. A uh, little, little rainy weather today, but, you know, we've had great weather all week, so... And we, too much. and we have, and, and we open up this museum this week, so we even with the rain, it's still good for me. Yeah. You know, it's so great to have life back in this museum again after it was literally dark for three months mm -hmm. and, and, and lifeless for three months. And so for us to be back open this week and to see people back here breathing life into a place that is dedicated to celebrating those and keeping the memory of those alive who made an indelible mark on this country's history. Mm -hmm. And so, no, so all of our spirits, I think, have been lifted as a result of. Yeah, you know, you, you definitely can't talk about the great history of baseball without bringing up the, the Negro Leagues and, and this museum. And I hadn't visited in a number of years and, and walked through there again today. And, you know, it brought back some memories from, you know, different times when I, I had walked through there. Uh, you know, it was before my life, but, you know, learning about it, being a sports enthusiast, I love just reading about these players and just talk about kind of the, the start of the museum and yeah. you know, the, the why. Well, you know, for the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum, we're celebrating 30 years, 30 years. Wow. So in the midst of this 100-year celebration of the birth of the Negro Leagues, maybe a little bit lost is the fact that the museum is turning 30 this year. And we started in a little one-room office inside the historic Lincoln Building, about as big as this area that we're sitting in. Okay. And it had a conference room table and guys like my dear friend, the late, great Buck O'Neill, mm -hmm. and other Negro Leaguers who were still with us at that time, literally took turns paying the monthly rent to keep the little office open. And, of course, with it, our hopes and dreams of one day building a facility that would pay rightful tribute to not only one of the great chapters in baseball history, but what now thousands of visitors each year discover, one of the greatest chapters in American history. And that's the powerful and compelling story of the Negro Leagues. And as you alluded, a league that was formed right here in Kansas City 100 years ago this year. And so for, for people who wonder why a Negro Leagues Museum is in Kansas City is because Kansas City is the birthplace of the Negro Leagues. The leagues were formed right around the corner at the Paseo YMCA. Mm -hmm. The building still stands. And that is where Andrew Roop Foster led a contingent of eight independent black baseball team owners into Kansas City. They met at the Paseo YMCA and out of that meeting, the birth of the Negro National League. The Negro Leagues would then go on to operate remarkably for 40 years, from 1920 until 1960. Wow, so lots of history in this year, you know, 30 yeah. years for the museum, like you mentioned, 100 years since the formation of the Negro Leagues, and, you know, and that building still stands. Still stands. There's, there's some renovation and yes. things that you were a part of going on. You have helped revitalize this area, too, at the 18th and Vine. Talk about some of the, the new things that are that are happening down here and as we're just we're pumping life into this area. Yeah, well, you know, for us, we take a lot of gratification that we've been in this neighborhood for 30 years. So when we started the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum way back in 1990, there was nothing else here at Historic 18th and Vine except the Lincoln Building. It was the only functioning building in the Historic 18th and Vine Jazz District, which once upon a time had been one of the most prominent African-American communities 
anywhere in the world because you have that intrinsic mixture of jazz and baseball that was radiating from that one street corner, 18th and Vine. But like a lot of urban areas, it had died. And, and truth of the matter is you can trace the rise and fall of the Negro Leagues with that rise and fall of a lot of urban communities. And so when we made the, co- the conscious and cognizant decision to anchor here in 1990, there were people who thought we were crazy. Hell, we might have thought we were crazy. But thanks to the infinite wisdom of the late, great Buck O'Neill, who said, this is where we will build this museum. And when we do so, we will help revitalize a community that had lost its way. It had been left to die. It had been left abandoned. And so we made that decision. And, and honestly, it was against the wishes of a lot of those who are supporters of the museum. And I can understand the angst that they had about this because the question was, who's going to come see you? You know, there's no built-in foot traffic. There's nothing there. There's no development there. Who's going to come and see you? But Buck held steadfast to the belief that this is where we will build this museum. And when we do so, we will help resurrect this community. 30 years later, we haven't looked back since. And 30 years in that time, we're now recognized as America's National Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. And when you look at how dynamic the change has been from the time that we anchored here to now with uh, the Urban Youth Baseball Academy behind us and, of course, a beautiful black archives of mid-America right behind us as well. We're next door to the American Jazz Museum. People are living and working and playing at 18th and Vine again. I honestly do not believe that would have happened had the Negro Leagues Museum not made the decision to anchor here. And, of course, we're now recognized as America's national Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. But it was never a self-serving proposition for this museum. It was always about the greater good. But we take great pride in the fact that, in essence, we've done for this community what Negro Leagues Baseball did for urban communities across this country. Wherever you had successful black baseball, you had thriving black economies. Absolutely. And I know, you know, I come down here usually about once a month. My barber's right up the street at the director's cut. You know, shout yes. out to Harlan. Um, you know, I don't know if you know those guys up there. Oh, absolutely. But, you know, I, I come see Harlan about once a month. You know, he makes sure I get cleaned up, you know, with the, <laughs> with the beard and everything. Does a good job. So, I mean, but but I, I think you're right there. If, if this museum doesn't say, hey, we're going to take on this challenge, yeah. um, you know, and it's not self-serving. And I think anybody who knew Buck O'Neill would know that there was nothing self-serving about, about him. About him. He didn't have uh, a self-serving bone in his body. No. Uh, I remember, you know, I came here as either a high school junior or senior, I can't remember, uh, on, on a field trip, you know, and he was here that day. And, I mean, the time he took with, with us, you know, our class, and, and that was the only time I met him, but, uh, you know, just time he didn't have to take to, to yeah. spend with yeah. group of high school kids to yeah. tell us, you know, some stories and things that you can't get from reading uh, uh, what's on the walls. Yeah. Um, you know, Buck O'Neill was a great man, and, and I know this, this museum pays very good tribute to him. And, you know, anybody in the Kansas City area knows the name Buck O'Neill. Well, and we hope that they continue to know the name Buck O'Neill. It, it still amazes me that it's been 14 years, you know, uh, since his passing. He died in 2006. But everywhere I go in this, in this community and through the baseball world, people have stories of Buck O'Neill. Oh, yeah. And, and it feels almost like in doing so they've kept him alive. Yeah, but it's been 14 years since he passed away. But we don't ever want people to forget Buck O'Neill. And and I want the spirit of Buck O'Neill to forever resonate here at the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. And, And I say this, and I say this with no disrespect to anyone who had anything to do with helping us build and establish and sustain this museum through the years. But it doesn't happen without Buck O'Neill. Mm-hmm. And, and so in New York, they had the house that Roof built, Yankee Stadium. Mm-hmm. In Kansas City, we have the house that Buck O'Neill built, the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. Yeah. Um, why don't you share with us, you know, maybe for, for people that are not familiar with Buck O'Neill, a couple stories. Um, yeah. You know, you knew him fairly well. I knew him so. well. He was a dear friend. He yep. was a dear friend. And, and the thing about it is Buck was 50 years my senior, but he was like a best friend uh-huh, and, and a confidant. 
and my mentor. And, and so he has had as much influence on my life as anyone, to be quite frank. And, and for those who may not be familiar with Buck O'Neill's story, Buck came to Kansas City in 1938. He started his Negro Leagues career with the Memphis Red Sox in 1937. And the great Monarchs manager, J.O. Wilkinson, literally stole Buck away from the Memphis <laughs> Red Sox, set up a deal that sent Buck from the Memphis Red Sox over to Kansas City. And Buck O'Neill was here in Kansas City from 1938 until the day he died in 2006. And, but from 38 to 1955, he was an integral part of the Kansas City Monarchs and been a great first baseman for the Monarchs, great defensive first baseman, 288 lifetime hitter. Mm. So he was a good hitter yeah. with some line, line drive power, and, and, uh, but a great defensive first baseman. He would eventually become player manager for the Monarchs. He left after the 1955 season to become a scout for the Chicago Cubs. And as a scout, of course, Buck O'Neill is responsible for having signed couple of folks that you might have heard of. Hall of Famers Ernie Banks, okay. Lou yeah. Brock, recent Hall of Famer Lee Arthur Smith, mm -hmm. and hopefully future Hall of Famer Joe Carter. Yeah, Buck signed all those guys to the Chicago Cubs. And then in 1962, Buck would become the first African-American coach in Major League Baseball history with the Chicago Cubs. And so he broke barriers himself. And then, of course, he became the voice of the Negro Leagues, perhaps mm. this game's greatest ambassador, and, and of course his compelling role narrating in Ken Burns' epic documentary on the history of baseball, literally stole the show. And, and America fell in love with Buck O'Neill. He was 82 years old at that time, and I'll never <laughs> forget the headline of the Kansas City Star says, a star is born at 82. When most of us are shutting it down, it jettisoned an entire new career for Buck. And God blessed him to live long enough to enjoy this newfound celebrity status. Now, he had been a star in the Negro Leagues, but he was a much bigger star after Ken Burns' documentary. And he would always say to me, he says, Bob, I've been telling these stories for 40 years and nobody ever listened. And Ken Burns gave him a platform and people listened. And there was old Buck, you know, this very charming, gentle man who was telling these wonderful stories to baseball fans that they'd never heard before. And, of course, he was doing it with a twinkle in his eye and a smile that lit up the screen. And, and from that point on, he was literally gallivanting all over the country, <laughs> preaching the gospel of the Negro Leagues and the virtues of his museum to any and everybody who would listen. And I just happened to be there for the ride. I guess I'm in the amen corner. Yeah. You know, I'm holding on to his coattail and enjoying <laughs> the ride. And I tell people all the time, I learned so much, and the smartest thing that I ever did was I kept my mouth closed and I listened because there was a lot of wisdom to be imparted if you wanted it. He didn't force it on you, but it was there if you wanted it, and I soaked it in, man. Well, that, that's fantastic, you know, the, the kind of journey that he took, you know, uh, played many integral parts in baseball, yes. you know, not, not only the, the Negro Leagues, but you talked about him, him breaking barriers and, and being the first uh, black coach uh, for an organization, and, and that's a big deal. Oh, you know, huge be, deal, yeah. Because especially with, you know, everything going on right now, and sometimes people forget, mm -hmm. you know, it, it's been a tough journey. Oh, um, it was, and there was nothing easy. There was nothing no. easy. Buck O'Neill was the grandson of enslaved people mm -hmm. who imparted change in this country and then lived long enough to enjoy some of the change that he helped make. And he never stopped believing that America could fulfill her promise uh, of being what we ideally see America to be. Mm -hmm. and, and America is the greatest country in the world. But that doesn't mean that she doesn't have some issues. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, we're all trying to get better. We're trying mm -hmm. to get better as people. And America is still trying to get better as a country. And, you know, as evidenced by some of the things that we're seeing and trying to address right now. Mm -hmm. But Buck never stopped believing that America could be all that she promised to be. Uh huh. And, and he played that role in helping invoke change in our society. Mm -hmm. And it's, you know, it's kind of appropriate that the way the show worked out that we are here on, on Juneteenth, 
you know, the uh, the celebration of the Emancipation yes. Proclamation that was issued, uh, you know, back in 1865, just a step forward for our country. There's still steps to be taken. Oh, of course. Um, that, that, that are always going to be yeah. there. But, uh, you know, it, it was a big step that day. And, uh, you know, like I said, I really enjoyed walking through the museum again today, uh, you know, and, and checking it out. And I encourage anybody who's, who's listening that may be in the Kansas City area or watching and you know, come down here. The, the museum's open again now to the there. public after our, our quarantine time a, has been lifted. And um, what are the, what are the hours again to the we, museum? We, we have new hours now, okay. you know, as we try to adjust to these, you know, coronavirus protocols that mm -hmm. have been established by the city. So our hours have been divided into two sessions, a morning session and an afternoon session. So we open at 10 and we have a morning session that goes basically from 10 to 1. We shut down for an hour, do some required sanitizing, just again to make sure that we're doing everything we possibly can to keep our staff and patrons safe. And then we have an afternoon session from 2 to 5. And this is Tuesday through Saturday for the foreseeable near future, Sundays went one session from noon until 4 p.m. Okay, so I w again, I would encourage anybody who has not been through here or even been in a long time, but uh, to, to come out and check out the Negro League Baseball Museum and just uh, walk through there and read about the history of not only our Kansas City Monarchs, but the, the other teams in the league. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, some of the other players. And, and it's the history of this country. Absolutely. Yeah, it is the history of this country. As I tell people all the time, it is America at her worst, segregation, mm -hmm. but it's also America at her triumphant best because these athletes never cried about the social adversity. They went out and did something about it. You won't let me play with you? I create my own. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but when you stop to think about that, that is the American way. Uh huh. And, and so that's what they did. They built they, they built a glorious story in the midst of an inglorious time in American history. And I think that's why people are so awe-inspired by what they learn here once they're introduced to the museum and to this incredible story. This story, there's nothing sad or somber about this story, even though this story is obviously against the backdrop of American segregation, mm -hmm. a horrible chapter in this country's history. But this and we treat it as such. This is a celebration. It is the celebration of the power of the human spirit to persevere and prevail. Again, you won't let me play with you. I create my own. Yeah. And, it's, and it was very successful. And it was extremely successful I mean, because this was the third largest black owned business in this country during that era of segregation. And it had more impact in terms of its support and spawning other black owned businesses than the two that were ahead of it. You know, the two that were ahead of it, they were in business primarily for themselves. Mm -hmm. But Negro Leagues Baseball was a catalyst that sparked economic development in African-American communities across this country. Again, wherever you had successful black baseball, you had thriving black economies. Historic 18th and Vine was no exception. The place was jumping. Mm -hmm. It was absolutely jumping. As the late, great Buck O'Neill would say, if you came to Kansas City and you had a relative that you hadn't seen in a long time, just come to 18th and Vine <laughs> on a Saturday and stand on the corner. They got to walk by there. You know, but that <laughs> But it was also the epicenter of black life in mm -hmm. Kansas City. And, and so, but that's what the Negro Leagues did. They, they built a way when there seemingly wasn't a way. And, and they knew they could play. And they were good at it. And they wanted everybody else to know how good they were. And, and so, but in the process and the pride and the passion that they had for this game, their love of the game literally changed the game but more importantly, it would change our country for the better. And, and it did. And, and, you know, Jackie Robinson was another integral part of that. Mm -hmm. You know, um, everybody knows the story of him breaking the color barrier in Major League Baseball as a player. Uh, you know, talk about that and his importance to taking that next step forward for our Oh, country. absolutely. And a lot of people don't know that Jackie Robinson's illustrious career began right here in Kansas City with the great Kansas City Monarch, 1945. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think people think that Jackie walked out of nowhere and just started playing for the Brooklyn Dodgers. But his real rookie season was here in Kansas City with the great Kansas City Monarchs in 1945. At the end of the 45 season, 
Branch Rickey had signed him away to play in the Dodgers organization. He was spending the 46th season in Montreal in the Dodgers farm system. And then, of course, on April 15, 1947, make that monumental walk on the field as a member of the Brooklyn Dodgers, forever changing the game of baseball, but more importantly, forever changing this country. And, the, you know, the question that is so posed, so oftentimes posed to me is, well, was Jackie the best player in the Negro Leagues? No. No, there were other players in the Negro Leagues who were better baseball players than Jackie Robinson. And let me tell you, that is not to disparage Jackie Robinson because Jackie Robinson was one of the greatest athletes in American sports history. Mm -hmm. His weakest sport was baseball. Yeah. Yeah. And and he's a Hall of Famer. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he's a Hall of Famer. Yeah, he was a much better basketball, football, track athlete than he was baseball player. And some say an even better tennis player. So there was nothing that Jackie could not do. This speaks to the talent that was there in the Negro League. So yeah, there were Mm -hmm. other guys who were better baseball players than Jackie, but Jackie absolutely was the right man to be the first. He had what I like to refer to as the intangibles Mm -hmm. that better prepared him to deal with the racial hatred. He had been a celebrated collegiate, an all-American football player at UCLA. So he had a little bit of cachet surrounding him. So he's college educated. He had served in the military. He, He was married. So all of those things would come into play. You know, when we start to look at the racial hatred that he would be confronted with. Mm -hmm. And I tell my guests here at the museum, when Jackie Robinson walks out on that field as a member of the Brooklyn Dodgers, man, he was called everything but as my mother would say, but a child of God when he walked out on that field. Mm -hmm. And, And when he came to the plate, they knocked him down continuously. As a matter of fact, the opposing team pitchers would oftentimes get fined if they didn't knock him down. Yeah, he was getting knocked down so much that Branch Rickey created a special baseball cap, because this is prior to the batting helmet in Major League Baseball. Mm -hmm. Branch Rickey would create a special baseball cap that had metal inserts sewn into the cap to try to protect Jackie's head because he was getting thrown at so often. Uh huh. And, and when he would slide in the second base, he would come up wet where the opposition had spit on him. When the opposition slid in the second, they came in spikes high trying to cut him. They did everything imaginable to break Jackie, but Jackie would not break. You see, some of those other Negro leaguers who had been so acclimated to segregation, they couldn't have handled it. Mm-hmm. Had you thrown a black cat on the field when Willie Wells walked out on the field? Man, his natural instinct would have been pick that black cat up, throw it right back where it came from. Uh huh. But then the naysayers would have said, see, I told you they couldn't handle it. But if Jackie can't play, the naysayers would have said, see, I told you they weren't good enough. So Branch Rickey had a double difficult task of identifying the right guy Mm -hmm. because failure is not an option on either side of the equation. So if Jackie can't take the abuse, experiment is over. If Jackie can't play, the experiment is over. Mm -hmm. Who knows how long it would have been for another black man to get that opportunity to play in the major leagues. It could have been 20 years later. But you think about this. If it's 20 years later, think about the great stars we would have missed. We'd have missed Willie Mays. Mm -hmm. We'd have missed Henry Aaron. We'd have missed Ernie Banks. We'd have missed Roy Campanella. We'd have missed Roberto Clemente. Can you imagine our sport without those great stars? And if you can, you can imagine what it was like before 1947. Mm -hmm. Because they didn't learn how to play baseball after 1947. They were playing great baseball well before 1947. Yeah. I mean, you know, you said that the Negro Leagues started in 1920, you know, 100 years ago today. So there was a lot of great baseball being played so in the black community. So much talent that came through these leagues. And, and you know, you're, you're, the point you make about, about Jackie being the right guy, yeah. because, you know, you're absolutely right. At the time, they were looking for any reason oh, yeah. to, to throw for him out. For this not to happen. Any, no, no, any no. reason. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and he and, didn't and give him one. No, no, he didn't. And, and I tell people all the time, the first guy can't fail. The first guy cannot fail. If the first guy fails, there is no second guy. Yeah, mm-hmm. and, and, and so 
And then to think about the fact that Jackie Robinson wasn't playing for Jackie Robinson. Jackie Robinson was literally carrying 21 million black folks on his back when he walked across those lines to play with the Brooklyn Dodgers. Because you think about it, had he failed, an entire race of people would have failed. That's an enormous amount of pressure for any one man to have to bear in a game that you well know is predicated on failure. Baseball at its crux is a game of failure. You fail more times than you succeed in this sport. You get to hit three every, every, every three hits every ten trips to the plate, yeah. man. You a Hall of Famer, yeah. Mm -hmm. So it's a game of failure, and he can't fail. And then you stop to think about it. He can't eat in the same restaurant as his teammates. He can't sleep in the same hotel as his teammates. But he's expected to walk across those lines and compete at a level equal or exceeding his teammates just to be there. We should never forget Jackie Robinson, nor should we forget the league that gave us Jackie Robinson. Because had it not been for the Negro Leagues, you don't get Jackie Robinson. And of course, the museum makes the bold assertion that Jackie Robinson's breaking of the color barrier wasn't just a part of the civil rights movement, it was the beginning of the civil rights movement in this country. That's 1947. That predates more those more noted civil rights occurrences. Mm -hmm. This is before Brown versus the Board of Education. This is before Rosa Parks' refusal to move to the back of the bus. As, as Buck O'Neill would so eloquently say, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was a sophomore at Morehouse College when Robinson signed his contract to play in the Dodgers organization. President Truman would not integrate the armed forces until a year after Jackie. So for all intensive purposes, this is what started the ball of social progress rolling in our country, baseball. And our country literally jumped on the coattail of baseball. That, that's a great point. Uh, you know, like I said, there's, there's a ton of history in the museum. One of my favorite parts as I was kind of walking through today is just looking back at, at kind of the, the hotel room yes. that, that, that the yes. man had to use. Yes. You know, it was a room not very big, yeah. uh, you know, and not a lot in there, bare necessities. You know, I'm sure the beds were probably not very comfortable, <laughs> uh, you know, and just, you know, that, that's a piece of the history that I think is important to know. Uh, from well, you know my generation and then even younger generations, like hey, this is this is where you know the things started. Yeah, and, and for us, it was important that as we tried to present the story, that we gave you an indication of what black life was like, and so you see those symbols of black businesses inside mm -hmm. the museum, the barbershop. The barbershop. Uh -huh, yes. The barbershop, which was always a staple in black life. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the barbershop was one of the few black-owned businesses that survived losing the Negro Leagues. Uh -huh, and then you see the sitting room of the street hotel. Mm -hmm. The street hotel was the black-owned hotel right here on the corner of 18th okay. and Purcell here in the historic 18th and Vine Jazz District. Now, you could walk into the sitting room of the street hotel on any given day. And, man, you might have seen sitting in one of those chairs former heavyweight boxing champion Joe Lewis or at that time the fastest man in the world, Jesse Owens, mm -hmm. although Jesse Owens would never race Cool Papa Bell. Flat out <laughs> refused to race the great Negro leaguer Cool Papa Bell. Jesse Owens would race horses around the bases but never Cool Papa Bell. Or you might see Lionel Hampton. Lionel Hampton was a devout Monarch fan. The great vibraphonist. As a matter of fact, Buck O'Neill would put Hamp in a monarch uniform, and man, he'd sit on the bench and serve as an honorary coach. There are great <laughs> photos of Cab Calloway, who had his own semi-pro black baseball team. So did Louis Armstrong. And as I tell our guests, interestingly enough, all the jazz musicians wanted to be baseball players. Mm. All the baseball players wanted to be jazz musicians. <laughs> so it was only fitting that they would come together here at 18th and Vine yeah. where you had the best of both worlds. Wow, that that's great stuff that, you know, you can't just read about and just the energy exuding off of you, you know, <laughs> as, as you're telling, telling us this. You know, it's just I can tell that you're very passionate 
about this. And, you know, like I said, the, I can't say enough great things about the museum. And this exhibit here, you know, kind of walking around, yeah. um, you know, with, with Joshua Josh Gibson and, and Jose Menendez. Yes. And Pop Lloyd, uh, Jackie Robinson uh, exhibit kind of on the other side yeah, of this, this wall. Yeah, this wall where we are um, has satchel features. Yeah. Satchel and so, do you have kind of a, a favorite spot that that you like to come to? You know, it changes every day. You know, now that we're back open again, mm -hmm. I think it changes for me on a daily basis because these pieces are amazing. Oh, yeah. These pieces are amazing, and as you alluded to in our opening, we call it Black Baseball in Living Color, and it features primarily the art of Greg Kreinler, and then it's accentuated with some other artistic pieces and some memorabilia. And most of the stuff is from a Seattle businessman named mm -hmm. Jay Codwell. Well, I can tell you that these portraits, they may have existed, but they never existed in color. And so Greg does what he calls color studies. So he goes back and researches to find these images and then through his research determine the color of the uniforms and even to some extent the pigmentation, the skin pigmentation of the athletes who are being depicted, and then he hand paints oh, each and wow. every one of them. And there are over 200 of these pieces on display here in this beautiful exhibition, which we opened February 13th, which was actually the oh, 100th anniversary of the birth of the Negro Leagues. Mm -hmm. And so we opened it to rave reviews, and it jump-started our centennial celebration. And then a month later, oh, everything yeah. came to a screeching halt. But this was supposed to close May 31st. We've been able to extend it to the middle of July. So hopefully a few folks will get an opportunity to come down and see, and I think marvel at these amazing pieces uh, that we call Black Baseball in Living Color. Yeah, um, so we are going to take a short break, and then we'll be right back. Uh, we're going to kind of talk in front of a couple of these different pieces uh, about the pieces. Um, I'm here with Mr. Bob Kendrick, the president of the Negro League Baseball Museum, Midwest Mike's Live on Uclick TV, and we'll be right back. At 15, he switched to piano and began traveling the show circuit with various vaudeville and burlesque troops. At the age of 24, he arrived on Kansas City's music scene and put down roots. His name and unique blues sound has been synonymous with the city ever since. Count Basie said you could always tell Kansas City Jazz, which is essentially Kansas City Jazz and Blues, because you could pat your foot to it. Count Basie's legendary influence on the Kansas City blues scene began when he started hanging out and performing at clubs and movie houses in the city's famous 18th and Vine District. These, these, these images existed. At 15, he switched to piano and began traveling the show circuit with various vaudeville and burlesque troops. At the age of 24, he arrived on Kansas City's music scene and put down roots. His name and unique blues sound has been synonymous with the city ever since. Count Basie said you could always tell Kansas City Jazz, which is essentially Kansas City Jazz and Blues, because you could pat your foot to it. Count Basie's legendary influence on the Kansas City blues scene began when he started hanging out and performing at clubs and movie houses in the city's famous 18th and Vine District. <laughs> My yeah, wife that sounds good. I'm hungry and, too. I yeah. haven't had lunch as soon as I've done. All right, I'm Gary back uh, with Midwest Mics on Uclick TV, and uh, again we're joined by Mr. Bob Kendrick of the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum, and we're here, uh, Black Baseball in Living Color, this exhibit. We're going to kind of walk around a little bit and talk about some of the most important pieces, but you were saying we needed to start with, with this special one that's right up front. Well, I think you almost have to start with Rube Foster, mm -hmm. the genius. Yeah, Rube Foster, I think you can make a legitimate case is the most impactful figure in baseball history. Because what people sometimes forget is that Rube Foster had been a great player in the pre-era of the Negro Leagues. Rube was a pitcher, and, and Rube Foster was a dominant pitcher. Won many games, head-to-head -head games against major leaguers over that time, and is credited with having invented what we now know to be the screwball. Back then, it was called a fadeaway, and Rube perfected that pitch, so much so that the great Major League manager, John McGraw, 
would sneak Ruth Foster into his camp so that Ruth Foster could teach Christy Matheson how to throw the <laughs> screwball. Christy Matheson threw the pitch all the way into the National Baseball Hall of Fame that he learned from Ruth Foster. Wow. But Foster was best known as this visionary, this tremendous leader. He would organize the Negro Leagues here in Kansas City in 1920. He would become president of the Negro Leagues. He owned the Chicago American Giants and he managed the Chicago American Giants. And as a manager, Rube Foster was known to fine his ball players as much as five dollars in the 1900s, early 1900s, if they were tagged out standing up. You were supposed to slide. Yeah. Rube would draw a circle down the first baseline and a circle down the third baseline. And if every one of his players couldn't drop a bunt inside that circle, he would find them. Oh, he man. was adamant about the style of play that became signature Negro Leagues baseball. Mm -hmm. Fast, aggressive, daring. They bunt their way on. They steal second. They steal third. And man, if you weren't too smart, they were stealing home. <laughs> and fans were flocking to those games. Yeah. So the pace of the game in the Negro Leagues was completely different than it was in the Major League. Major League Baseball was essentially a base-to-base -base kind of game. So guy got on base, you moved him over to second, and then the big hitters came in and drove him in. But mm -hmm. not in the Negro Leagues. No, the, the tempo of the game was fast and aggressive and exciting. And as a result, people were so greatly entertained when they came to those games. As Buck O'Neill would say, you couldn't go to the concession stand because you might miss something that you ain't never seen before. <laughs> yeah. But that was Rube Foster. That's... He was the architect. Yeah, he was the architect, and he led the Negro Leagues from 1920 until his untimely passing, and, and, and the Negro Leagues were flourishing under his leadership. All right, so Rube Foster uh, kind of started the, mm -hmm. the uh, Negro Leagues, um, and as we... Uh, Kind of come here, um, you know, 1916 to 1929, kind yes. of a, another period. Here's a, a photo of Hilton Smith with a quote on the wall. Which is one of my favorites. Is it? Yeah, one of my favorites. Hilton Smith and Buck were very close. They were teammates on the 1942 Monarchs, but Hilton Smith is one of those unsung stars of the Negro Leagues, although he is in the National Baseball Hall of Fame. But Hilton Smith had, and I hate to say misfortune, because to play with Satchel was an absolute joy, but he mm -hmm. was on the same team with Satchel Paige, and, and they were polar opposites. When Satchel walked in the room, the room lit up. You knew he was in the room. Hilton Smith was very quiet, very reserved, very unassuming but just as lethal. Yeah, mm -hmm. Hilton Smith did something that I don't think we will ever see done in the game of baseball ever again. He won 20 games or more 12 consecutive years. Wow. And at that time, he might have been the best pitcher in all of baseball. And, and as you can see in this quote from Hall of Famer Monty Irvin talking about Hilton Smith's curveball, and Buck O'Neill said Hilton Smith had the greatest curveball he ever seen. Well, Monty Irvin, who had to face that curveball, absolutely agreed. He says, Hilton had one of the finest curveballs I've ever had the displeasure of, <laughs> to try and hit. His curveball fell off the table. Sometimes you knew where it was coming from, but you still couldn't hit it because it was that sharp. He was just as tough as Satchel Paige. And that's wow. coming from Hall of Famer Monty yeah. Irvin, who was a superstar in the Negro Leagues. Yeah, and I mean, you know, if, if Buck O'Neill's saying it's the best one he's ever seen, I mean, that guy saw a lot of baseball, saw a, lot a lot of, of guys saw, picked. Yes, so if, if he's saying that, you know, that's, that's a big compliment. Absolutely. You said you got going too, so we'll. Yeah, then we, you know, you start to make this. your way into this area, and, and you know, this is a this is one of the owners. That's Gus Greenlee. Gus Greenlee owned the Pittsburgh Crawfords, uh -huh, mm -hmm. and the Pittsburgh Crawfords will become one of the great teams in black baseball history. And Gus Greenlee was one of only a handful of owners that actually had his own ballpark. He built Greenlee Stadium paid $100,000 in 1931 to build his own ballpark. Yeah, Greenleaf, Greenleaf Field wow. in, in Pittsburgh. And, and he helped revitalize or restore the Negro Leagues after the Great Depression. It would be Gus Greenlee who would create the East-West All-Star Classic. Uh-huh. 
the Negro Leagues mm-hmm. version of the All-Star Game, debuted the same year as Major League Baseball's All-Star Game, 1933. Wow. And yes, it did outdraw Major League Baseball's All-Star Game. They would put over 50,000 fans in Chicago's Comiskey Park for the Negro Leagues version of the All-Star Game. And I can tell you right now, it is no small feat to put 50,000 in yeah. Comiskey under any circumstances. And it became one of the greatest sporting events in American sports history that nobody knew anything about it. It was almost like it never happened. Yeah, yeah. I, I saw a few exhibits, you know, in the museum talking about that East-West yes. All-Star Classic. And, um, you know, again, just, just the history. And I, I'm almost overwhelmed. You know, well, it's almost too much to take in in one day. Man, it, it's amazing. And like I said, I just marvel at the incredible work of Greg. You know, yeah, you, these photos. The great mule subtles and this picture power hitter swung a 50-ounce bat. Whew. Yeah, 50-ounce bat. Wow. But again, I tell people all the time, if your nickname is Mule, you got to be strong. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. the great Leon Day. Leon Day is in the National Baseball Hall of Fame. Leon Day is enshrined in the hall as a pitcher. And he was indeed a great pitcher. But the late great Buck O'Neill swore to the day he died that Leon Day was a better center fielder than he was pitcher. <laughs> and he's in the National Baseball Hall of Fame as a pitcher. You know, that's the kind of talent that was there in the Negro Leagues. And, and, and so sometimes people are skeptical. But I tell people, if you want to get an understanding of the talent in the Negro Leagues, all you have to do is just stop right now and think about the two greatest living major leaguers, hands down, Willie Mays and Henry Aaron. Mm-hmm. Both of them come out of the Negro Leagues. That's the kind of star power that was there in the Negro Leagues. Yeah, they were good young players in the Negro Leagues who became great stars in the Major Leagues. There were guys well before them who were just as good, some will say even better, than Henry Aaron and Willie Mays, which is scary to think mm-hmm. that there were guys yeah. better than Henry yeah. Aaron and Willie Mays. Yeah. <laughs> it's, you know, it, it's scary to think, you know, if, if they don't have those years as young players in the Negro Leagues, mm-hmm. you know, d- do they become those Hall of Famers? You know, do they would have gotten that chance? Yeah, do, will they they, never what would have happened? You exactly. Know? And so that's why this history is so important. So, absolutely. That we, we talk about this yeah. and we let people know. Yeah. Uh, I know you said you have another interview coming up, so we're going to uh, get you out of here. Um, it, any parting words um, no, I, for anybody thinking about well, maybe coming down? Well, first and foremost, I want to thank you guys for coming and spending some time here and being a part of this reopening week. We encourage folks to make their way and experience the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. I honestly believe that the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum's reopening could not have happened at a better time. This museum is perhaps more important right now than ever before mm-hmm. with some of the things that we're seeing in our society. Well, you get an opportunity to come here and learn the black experience. You get not only to see the trials and tribulations, but you also get to see the success. And it's all done and told through the lens of baseball. And so we encourage people to come down and experience this. We also encourage people to become a member of the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum or to continue to support the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum to learn more about us, please visit nlbm.com to learn how you can donate or become a member and, and of course, to learn everything that's happening in and around the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. Mm -hmm. And if you're so inclined, you can follow me on Twitter at NLBM Prez, P-R-E-Z, okay. and that same username on Instagram. Now, I don't know what I'm doing, but I'm <laughs> on there, hey. and we try to keep people informed about what's happening in the world of the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. Yeah, and we'll make sure to uh, send that information out, you know, the, the website and, yeah. and the Twitter and, and all that. That way our, our audience can find it. Um, thank you again for your time. I mean... Yeah, happy belated birthday. Yeah, no, no. You're going to catch Buck and pass Buck. Yeah, man, I'll tell you what, I got ways to go to catch old Buck. <laughs> hey, he did it well for a long time, um, you know, but it, it was an honor to talk to you today and to spend some time and, and get your take on this wonderful place. Um, you know, I'm so glad you guys are reopened. And, you know, just let's get some people down here yeah. and, and, and come yeah. through. And like I said, I'll send out the information on that website and everything through our social media and, um, you know, I'll get the intern on that. Jim, nah. Uh, 
Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, thank Ryan yeah, for playing the sax open. Yeah, um, it reminded me of a story that Buck O'Neill told. It was so cool to have the sax intro. Well, Buck said the Monarchs had played a game here in Kansas City on a Saturday, and everybody said, we're going to go, go home, get cleaned up, and they were going to come back and meet at a nightclub called the Subway. Well, it was called the Subway because it was actually literally below street level. And so Buck said, we're all, you know, sitting in the nightclub, sipping on a little tea. When in walks a kid, got a horn over his shoulder, he wants to blow. And everybody says, let him blow. Well, Buck says, this kid gets up on the stage and he starts making noises out of this horn that they'd never heard before. You know, and he said, but you had to pay attention. Well, that kid was 17-year-old Charlie Yardbird Parker, who went to Lincoln High School right up the hill from the museum. But again, it gives you an indication of the star power that wow. was there as part of the story of the Negro Leagues, where jazz and baseball became this literal, literally a cultural crossroads here at 18th and Vine. Yeah, well, that's a couldn't think of a better way to end um, this interview <laughs> than uh, that story. And we're going to take another short break, and then I'll come back and kind of close, wrap things up, and, and talk a little bit more about a couple of these exhibits in here. But uh, we'll be right back on Uclick TV. At 15, he switched to piano and began traveling the show circuit with various vaudeville and burlesque troops. At the age of 24, he arrived on Kansas City's music scene and put down roots. His name and unique blues sound has been synonymous with the city ever since. Count Basie said you could always tell Kansas City Jazz, which is essentially Kansas City Jazz and Blues, because you could patch your foot to it. Count Basie's legendary influence on the Kansas City Blues scene began when he started hanging out and performing at clubs and movie houses in the Well, welcome back in here, Gary. A great interview with with uh, somebody. I you know, there's not too many people that can talk as good as Buck, but Bob oh, can man. talk as good as Buck. Uh, I'm gonna tell you what. As a guy who's you know kind of doing that interview, it definitely was easy for me. Oh. He made my Asked job the easy. Question, let it go. Yeah, he he could talk, and that's fantastic. Uh, you know, he that was a great interview, and you know, I know he's got a lot of stuff going on. He's been on I think Fox Four this week. I mm -hmm. saw or KCTV Five. And, you know, he's, he's doing a lot of media, and so, you know, I appreciate him taking some time to, to talk to us and just his knowledge of this museum and the history of black baseball. He's been there is, since day one, man. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's phenomenal. Like, <laughs> yeah, baseball, but <laughs> since the museum, <laughs> yeah, yeah. He, he talked about, you know, 30 years ago the museum opened and 100 years ago the Negro League started, right. so. You know, just two fantastic um, facts. Well, and you know, um, we the reason this interview came up is because Greg from uh, KC PT Radio over at UMKC, I can't remember the call letters, came up with a story how Negro League Museum was basically a birth out of out of the last. Uh, the virus in 1920 and uh without that we wouldn't have this building and you know it's just a great honor but you know ryan and i went around and and drove around mm -hmm. yesterday got some pictures uh did a little couple of videos on some stuff we'll talk about 18th and vine here yeah. and and the um, kansas city uh um, um youth uh, sports complex the yeah, urban com youth baseball the urban com complex here go ahead and pull up the urban video there if you can but you've been over there and um you know, it's it's all youth, and um, so.
Hey, I, you know, I've been down here and uh, a lot, and usually I get off the highway and go to Gates or Arthur Bryant's, mm -hmm. and I, I very seldom have, do I drive down 18th and Vine, but over the years I've been down it probably 20 times. Man, every time I go down, it's, it's more beautiful and more beautiful. Mm -hmm. And I was, I was telling Bob Kendrick, I said, hey, we didn't get to have, uh, you know, uh, dress to the nines at Kauffman Stadium this year. Let's bring it to 18th and Vine and have a block party. How about that, Gary? Hey, yeah, that'd be, that'd be great. We'll uh, Mendoza Mike's can sponsor. Yeah, I don't know about sponsor, but, you know, we, <laughs> we'll, 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 we can show up. You know, I, he was dressed to the nines, you know, pretty much today, as you could see, in, in his suit. And, right. Um, He's always dressed to the nines. Yeah, he... he that's 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 the guy he is, and, th and that's amazing. Uh, that's great. You know, I, like I said, I, I took I kind of made an afternoon of this. You know, a little late morning, took uh, my two girls to um, Arthur Bryant's. You know, right up the street at. at See him with their dad. So, yeah, I mean, uh, there's restaurants down here, barber mm -hmm. shops down here. Yeah. You know, Gates and Arthur Bryant's right aren't aren't on right on 18th and Vine. They're just around no. the corner. But yeah. but there's other places. There's the seafood. What is it called? I can't remember. League Baseball Museum, and so if you need a haircut, um, you know definitely go to the director's cut. Check out Harlan, there's Barbara Bennett. Yeah, there was Buck on the TV over there behind us, or uh, catty corner from us. But uh, you know, it was it, like I said, it was great. Like kind of late morning, early afternoon. Um, you know, from from being on UClick TV and being able to do this show and, and bring you guys some entertainment and you know i hope everybody enjoyed it like i said i really enjoyed talking to mr bob kendrick just phenomenal guest uh you know i felt like we could have talked to him all afternoon i think he could have told probably buckle neal stories until we got you know tired of standing here um you know and we probably could have went to each one of these exhibits and and he could have had a, a story about them that he heard from buck on numerous occasions and i guarantee you you walk up to him Ten days, over ten weeks' time, once a week for ten weeks, and he's going to tell a different one. He's not going to tell you yeah. the same one because he, he just. I mean, we brought up golf the other day because I'm a former golf mm -hmm. pro. He talked about Buck O'Neill, and himself, and uh, some guy that was doing a story on Buck, um, going out to Wolf Creek and playing. And Buck shot his age at the age of 94 at Wolf Creek, which, if you've never played or been out at Wolf Creek, it's a pro caliber course. And, mm -hmm. I mean, 94 doesn't sound that great, but at the age of 94, that's, that's talent. I, I wouldn't hit 94 out there. You would hit 74. Would, no. You were, not. You were a college basketball player. You can do I, anything. Uh, I haven't even swung a golf club in a prior year. But, uh, no, um, again, just I can't, I can't say enough great things about this Negro League Baseball Museum. If, uh, and I, I encourage everybody who's watching or listening, you know, come down here and check it out. Uh, you can get tickets online, uh, NLB, I think NLB.com is, is, is what he said. Um, yep, NLBM.com, NLBM.com. So Negro League Baseball Museum, just those initials, NLBM.com. You can get tickets uh, if you want a person that wants to be a longtime sponsor of them. You know, you can, uh, member, you can definitely look at those options as well. But uh, it's a piece of history that we need to know and especially you know he said right now with with things going on in our country this is a piece of history that people need to know so that we don't repeat how things went before so and they are practicing social distancing they are and, and, and a lot of people i see at the door right now they're only allowing i think so many in a time maybe mm -hmm. so uh, be patient if you come out yeah and he did say there's different sessions and 
you know, right now because of the social distancing, they do like a morning and an afternoon. So make sure you just go on the website. Like I said, you can get your tickets there, and it's got all those times, uh, nlbm.com, and check that out. But, uh, and black baseball in living color, this exhibit here. Yes. This is a, a room that we're in, changes from exhibit to exhibit from mm-hmm. time to time. Um, the Jazz Museum, the, the Baseball Museum, the gift shop. What else yep. is in here? Yeah, there, uh, I think there's, there's a jazz gift shop too. Yeah. Uh, you know, which uh, my daughter, like I said, I brought them down here. She wrote me into buying her a hoodie in the jazz shop. Got to have know. a hoodie? Got to have a hoodie, I guess. And then, you know, I bought my youngest a hat. Obviously, I'm a hat guy. I bought myself two new hats today. Well, this is Uh, Father's Day week. They're supposed to be buying you stuff. Yeah, I know. I know. (laughs) Father's Day weekend is kind of a good kickoff um, to that for me because, you know, like I said, I got to have a good lunch with with my daughters somewhere they've never been. And, you know, the original Arthur Bryant's is another historic spot, you know, down here that many people have came through. And the history here at this Negro League Baseball Museum and, you know, Austin's sad that he couldn't be with us I'm today. I'm sad he can't uh, either. You know, we tried just with scheduling. I don't um, know if he would have been able to talk, though. Yeah, I know. He, <laughs> he may not have, you know. But uh, he, uh, you know, his work schedule just wouldn't allow it. And But uh, we carried on and got a show for everybody. Well, and, you know, speaking of Buck, one last thing I want to mention is I think there's a push right now. I know there's a push right now to possibly get him into the, the Major League Baseball Hall mm-hmm. of Fame. Um Man, would that not be wonderful? I know they had a big push be. before he passed, and it didn't happen. Um, sometimes uh, we don't get to live through great things that we've done, but you know what? Great people do things without expecting yeah. the return, and, and Buck was one that um, definitely gave the return. And you know, it's unbelievable what they've done down here in, in this area. If you drive down 18th Street all the way down to downtown, has really came a long ways. There's a short distance between. Um, basically the edge of downtown and, and, and over here to uh, Paseo and Truce that it hasn't been fixed up yet, but doesn't look that bad, but is on the way. A lot of, lot of stuff. It's amazing how the crossroads downtown, West Bottom River Market, this whole area is a big tourist area now. It is, and, you know, like I said, we, we talked to two guys that just drove here from, like, Carolina mm-hmm. just to come to the museum. Now they're they going to the Louisville Slugger fans. Museum. Yeah, now they're going to Louisville Slugger Museum on the way back, so... I mean, it is definitely, if you're in the Kansas City area, you know, just just come on down and and check it out. Uh, You know, hopefully you enjoyed our show today. I am Gary. I'm Jim, and Austin is back in studio. Yeah, he's he's at work. Um, Ryan, behind the scenes, he opened us up playing some sax. Did a great job there. Appreciate that. But uh, we will see you guys next week. Now might be the perfect time to invest in your education. If you have work experience and would like to return to study part-time for a diploma or degree in business, consider joining UCD Quinn School. Our flexible program means you can continue working whilst undergoing your studies. Find out more at ucd.ie forward slash Quinn and search part-time courses. UCD Lachlan Quinn School of Business. Developing impactful business leaders. Want award-winning box sets? Try Now TV. See every epic episode of Game of Thrones, both sides of the law in The Wire, and why Succession got everyone talking. So, treat yourself to award-winning shows on a Now TV entertainment pass. To start your 14-day free trial today, search Now TV. 18 plus new customers only. Auto renews at 15 euro unless cancelled. Offer ends 7th of July. Terms apply. Better sleep means a better you. That's why Mattress Firm came up with the Rest Assured Promise, featuring the best mattresses from America's best mattress brands. Like the Temper Breeze Collection, available now, with a $300 instant gift good towards your choice of sleep accessories. Visit with our sleep experts in-store, online, or by phone to find the right bed for you. Only at Mattress Firm, America's number one Tempur-Pedic retailer. Offer valid with qualifying purchase. Restrictions apply. Valid at participating locations only. For offer details, visit mattressfirm.com sale. Es mejor llegar tarde a casa que nunca volver a llegar. Es mejor llegar tarde al trabajo que nunca volver a trabajar. Y es mejor recoger tarde a tus hijos que nunca volver a recogerlos. Llegar tarde a donde vayas por esperar a que pase el tren es mucho mejor que arriesgar tu vida tratando de ganarle el paso. Por algo existe el dicho, más vale tarde que nunca. Alto, el tren no para. Mensaje de Netzer. 